Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M. This is podcast number 27. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is the director of the Vaccine Education Center and a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He also has the title of the Maurice R. Hillman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Offit is an internationally recognized expert in the fields of virology and immunology and was a member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He is a member of the Food and Drug Administration Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee and a founding advisory board member of the Autism Science Foundation, the Foundation for Vaccine Research, a member of the Institute of Medicine and co-editor of the foremost vaccine text, Vaccines. Dr. Offit has published more than 150 papers in medical and scientific journals in the areas of rotavirus-specific immune responses and vaccine safety. He is also the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatec, which has been recommended for universal use in infants by the CDC and is currently in use in pediatricians' office all around the country and in the world. Dr. Offit has received many awards over his career relating to his outstanding service in the field of pediatrics, infectious diseases, and vaccinology. He has penned seven medical narratives that have received numerous accolades related to the fields of vaccine and vaccine injury. Dr. Offit is a very thoughtful scientist and pediatrician. As he navigates the interview, we see very clearly that he is thinking through each decision at each time based on the data at hand and not sitting back and looking at old information as a pretext to make decisions of today. And I find that very refreshing as we go through our conversation because much of the media coverage seems to be blanket acceptance of potential realities as they exist. And I, for one, as you know, over the length of this podcast and the newsletter, have many questions about what's been happening over the years and what is at best right now for our patients, our loved ones, and our families. Dr. Offit really is a skeptical scientist. He looks at everything with a framework of what is the best. And for me, that's exactly what I wanted to see in, in the modern media narrative and have not been seeing. So he has also, you know, because of his staunch opinions being very pro-vaccine, run into some trouble with folks that are anti-vaccine. I, as well, am very pro-vaccine. And to this, that discussion, you know, we look again at what are the problems that have come because there's been a fair amount of pushback against the COVID vaccine. What has that led to as far as the total coverage of vaccines across the board for children? Are we seeing more problems? Where are we going with the current narrative of vaccines in general for the society that we live in? And these are all very important questions to ask because, you know, in my mind, I have lived through periods of time where certain vaccines weren't available. And I saw the kids suffer day to day, uh, potential morbidity and mortality. And, you know, the, the, these realities exist. They are not narratives that are fictitious. And I thought it was perfect 
situationally to have Dr. Offit on right now as we plan to see what's happening this fall with boosting and what's coming in the future with COVID in general. How should we look forward with potential new variants? You know, Dr. Offit was on the FDA advisory committee this fall for looking at should we put the BA.5 Omicron protein structure in the new vaccine boosting. And he was one of the dissenting opinions, again, which I find to be very refreshing. He's looking at this from all angles. And, you know, we're going to get into some of the details as to the why. And I think you'll find that this discussion is very nuanced as to where we should be going as a society. And and we do touch on some of the topics that aren't being touched on much in the public domain. So without wasting any more of your time, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging and excellent conversation with Dr. Paul Offit. Well, good morning, Dr. Offit. Paul, I appreciate having you on the show this morning. I'm really excited to share the information regarding uh, COVID vaccinations, boosters, and everything related to what's going on in the world of Omicron with the listeners, especially as it relates to kids. So welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. So let's get started by uh, discussing the lay of the land as it is right now with the new variant BA.5. And I know BA.4 still a tiny bit of circulation. Now this question of BA.46, I guess, and human infectious spread being so incredible to the land of what we think of as with measles, uh, with infectivity. Um, One of the first questions I have as you lay out that framework, are we likely to see minor shifts or are we potentially going to see some some potentially major shifts as i know this is a tough question but just your thoughts on that and so take it away sure um so starting from the beginning um the virus that raised its head in wuhan the so-called wuhan strain or the ancestral strain is the strain to which all vaccines are made whether it's the pfizer vaccine moderna vaccine and j vaccine the novavax vaccine the astrazeneca vaccine they're all made to protect against the wuhan ancestral strain but that's not the strain that left China. The strain that left China was the so-called D614G strain. It had one critical amino acid shift from aspartic acid to glycine. D is aspartic acid, G is glycine, 614 is where, like in the middle of that SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. But that was a critical mutation because what that did was it stabilized the virus. So now you had a virus that was 10 times more contagious than the, the original Wuhan strain. And so that virus, D614, swept through Asia, swept through Europe, swept through the United States killed a couple hundred thousand people here before it was replaced by the alpha variant because the alpha variant was more contagious which was then replaced by the delta variant because the delta variant was more contagious which was then replaced by the omicron variant and and omicron crossed the line because now instead of having you know roughly five six or so mutations especially in the so-called receptor binding domain of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein you had 30 mutations 15 of which were in the the receptor binding domain I mean this was a drifted virus I, I don't think anybody who studied coronaviruses thought that you could have the kind of drift that this virus had. Um, It's it's more like flu in that sense. Um, But the good news, and so with Omicron, following Omicron's crossing of the line, then you have the Omicron subvariants, BA5, BA4, BA2121, et cetera, um, which which are even further away, actually, from from Omicron. but the, the, the critical question is, is, is in terms of shifting. I mean, do you get a virus that is, is um, not just immune evasive for mild illness, which these viruses are, Omicron and the Omicron subvariant, even if you've been vaccinated or naturally infected, you could still get a mild infection because there's, it's that different from the vaccine you've gotten. But you're still protected against serious illness. And I think the reason you're still protected against serious illness is really all we care about. We're just right. trying to 
took ourselves out of the hospital, out of the ICU, and out of the morgue. The serious illness is, is mediated by T cells, T helper cells, cytotoxic T cells, and the, the epitopes, the immunologically distinct regions on the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein that are recognized by T cells are generally conserved. And that has remained true. So your question essentially is, will we get to the point where those regions essentially mutate to the point that they're not recognized by T cells? And if that happens, then we are talking about starting all over again. I, I personally don't think that's going to happen, but you probably shouldn't make predictions about this virus because you're always wrong, but I'm going to predict that uh, that, it, that won't happen. Yeah, and I and I, I tend to agree. I think the natural history of the virus is likely that it doesn't gain much if it starts killing us more, and it's probably just as happy as it is right now, just staying in a nice hyperinfectious state, just passing passing along and along and along. Why? The, when we started vaccinating folks, it was pretty clear that this spike protein was really immunogenic. People were getting swollen lymph nodes where it was happening. Women were going in for breast cancer screenings. were like, holy cow, this has all exploded. What is it about the spike protein that makes our immune system so angry? I'm not so sure it's the spike protein as much as it is the... Um... You know the mRNA, uh, uh, the the mRNA vaccine, the okay. nanoparticle, which in the lipid nanoparticle itself can be sort of serve as an adjuvant, um, and then the mRNA that's contained in that. Because you're right. I mean, I um, have not seen this level of lymphadenopathy in vaccines. We give a lot of vaccines in arms in the pediatric world, and I have not seen this level of lymphadenopathy since really the smallpox vaccine. I mean, I remember. Well, I was uh, the sort of the medical officer in a sense at, at uh, Whistler Institute where I trained. Um, and um, there was a, I'll never forget this story, there was a, um, an interest in trying to eliminate raccoon rabies from Paramore Island. Okay, so Paramore <laughs> Island is an island off the coast of, of Virginia. And so what they did was they sort of soaked chicken heads in this vaccinia virus recombinant, so basically the smallpox vaccine, into which was cloned the gene that coded for the rabies glycoprotein, the surface rabies protein. So they were going to suck, soak the chicken heads in this, and then they were going to take it to Paramore Island, and the raccoons were going to eat the chicken heads, and they were going to eliminate rabies. So I had to give smallpox vaccine to all these veterinarians who were going to go to Paramore Island to distribute these chicken heads. And one guy came in a few days after I'd given the vaccine, he had fever, rigors, chills, and had this huge sort of uh, uh, lymph node swelling, so-called axillary adenopathy under his arm. And, you know, I thought I had screwed up. I thought I had given him a bacterial infection of his lymph node under his arm. So I took him to my boss, uh, Stanley Plotkin, who I think in many ways is kind of the father of modern vaccines in some ways. Um, he had certainly had a lot of experience with vaccines. And he looked this guy over and he just said two words to me good take meaning this was exactly what you would have expected uh, <laughs> shocking but but you're right this this and i'm not sure why i mean maybe it's it's unique to the spike protein i don't think so i think it's more likely the adjuvant effect of the limpid nanoparticle or the nature of this mrna which is taken up um as you 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 you're not, we're, we're what's different about this vaccine than say uh, other vaccines is you're actually giving the gene that codes for the spike protein so your body makes the spike protein and um and and then that's that is processed by dendritic cells primarily and then taken up to the lymph node where obviously it's an enormous stimulus it's, these are surprisingly good vaccines yeah I, you know it is quite amazing how well i mean i, I when the first data came out way back in the beginning 95 percent protection against severe disease and death that's that's unbelievable i'm not too sure i mean maybe you guys believe that was going to be the case but i was quite blown away when those numbers came out that that like this vaccine is that protective again we're not talking about prevention of transmission we're just talking about prevention of what we really care about death did you guys anticipate that was going to be the case no 
quite the opposite. Uh, Dr. Fauci, who sort of took the lead on this, at least in terms of explaining this to the public, said early on, as did sort of people in the FDA, that I'm on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, that if we were uh, presented data that showed that the vaccine was 50% effective, that we would, meaning protecting against uh, significant illness, that we would then approve that vaccine. As we got closer and closer, Dr. Fauci uh, posited that he thought it could be as, as good as 70% effective. And then it was like 95% effective yeah. serious illness. I think the one communications error that we made though early on, and maybe we'll get to this as you move on in this podcast, it was also 95% effective against mild disease. There's no way that was gonna hold up. I mean, this is a short incubation period mucosal infection. I'm mean, even if this, even if the Wuhan strain never mutated, and that was the only virus that was out there, and a hundred percent of the population were vaccinated, over time, because for the most part, mild illness is mediated by neutralizing antibodies. And two, neutralizing antibodies over time will fade. That's always true. Three to six months later, that'll fade. So that protection could not last. The reason it was so good was that those were three-month studies. And most of the participants in that study had just gotten their second dose. So that's why it was so good. And if I, if you got to go back in time and do this all over again, I wish we could have gotten off right at the beginning and said, this protection against mild illness will not last. Because what happened was six months later, you know, all the papers came out showing still well protected against serious illness, but we're having fading immunity. And then worse, we use the term breakthrough. Yeah, breakthroughs. Oh, yeah. It's a terrible word. Yeah, and I think that really put some people on the heels and got the political side of this got involved as well, which was such a mess, you know, and then all of a sudden a, a subset of the population decided, okay, breakthroughs, it's not working, it's not doing anything, so why vaccinate at all? And I think a lot of people unfortunately lost their lives because of that that reality, so so I tend to agree. I want to talk a little bit about affinity maturation, because I know, you know, like you're saying, when the when the, the spike proteins delivered, or actually in this case, the mRNA genetics are delivered, we start to make the spike protein. Help the listeners understand in the in the germinal cell what really happens because I think it's super fascinating that our body makes antigenic sort of uh, or not antigenic but antibody responses differently as it goes into the germinal center closer and closer in the rings of the tree. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm the best person to do that, but I think um, it is it is interesting how um, this the the antibody response against this virus. Um, has has evolved. I mean, the what happens is you get into the the so the germinal center is that place in your body, and it's not just in say lymph nodes, but in the in the world of uh, of uh, the intestine. You know, there's these you know these this similar the equivalent of that in the intestine as well. Um, you know, that's when you get this this uh, um, um, immune response that is both a B and T cell response that is more 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 sort of specific in a sense. I mean, as you as you hone in on those critical epitopes. In this case, the epitopes that, that are associated with binding to where the virus binds to cells, you know, you get um, this maturation towards that sort of more, I guess, honed in neutralizing response, which is protective. And um, the good news is uh, that, that, again, I want to make the point that you are, are even though we get these variants, uh, which are immune evasive, that you're still protected against serious illness. I just, I, I really, you know, as we move into this bivalent vaccine for the fall, I really think that you could reasonably make an argument that you don't need a, a variant-specific vaccine until you have a variant that is, as you described earlier in the show, um, resistant to protection against serious illness, and that hasn't happened.
Right. And I think some of that data that you're talking about, I remember when the fourth dose, the Israeli study came out and the fourth dose again, looked and said, okay, we're having improved efficacy against mild disease. And they again, stopped the study at that three month mark where their antibodies were peaking again. So to some extent, the boosters are giving at best what, eight to, to 16 weeks of, of humoral immunity floating around in the system? Yeah, I think we sort of lost our way a little bit here. I, I think the original, and, and, and Dr. Fauci said it, and Dr. Walensky said it, and, and others have said it right at the beginning, the goal of this vaccine is to protect serious illness, protect against you being hospitalized or worse. And, right. and yet we sort of drifted away from that. And, 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 and maybe in part, that's because you could see people who still had gotten two doses of vaccine or three doses of vaccine that that nonetheless were hospitalized. And I think, but if you if you, you we need to answer the question is who were those people? Who was it that despite two doses or three doses were still getting hospitalized? And the answer is, as the, the Dr. Walensky's phrase, the elderly, elderly, meaning people over eighty. Um, two is people who had the kind of um, who were immune compromised, who just never really made a very good immune response to the vaccine. And then I think most importantly, and this this is a, a not discussed as much as it should be, there are those people who have the kinds of um, diseases, whether it's chronic lung, severe chronic lung disease, severe chronic heart disease, that, that even a mild infection sort of tips them over to, to be hospitalized. And, and, and if that's if we're trying to prevent that, if we're trying to prevent mild infections, then you're talking about frequent booster dosing a couple times a year, which doesn't make sense. It's just not a viable public health strategy. So I think we need to define who is it that we're trying to boost because what ends up happening is that 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 people, um, young healthy people, you know, hear, well, I need to get my third dose. Well, I need to get my fourth dose. You, you probably don't. I mean, I think probably at this point, frankly, you could make the argument that two doses was enough to protect you against serious illness. Um, I think that ship has sailed. I think we're in at least the three dose realm, but. Um, you know, if you look at who's getting hurt by this virus, it's really um, those sort of three groups that I just outlined. And so that should be our focus. Because just, just to, sorry, to just put this in, in perspective a little bit. Think about where we were two years ago. I mean, when this virus rolled into this country in January of 2020, we had a, we were a blank slate. Nobody was immune to this virus. We didn't have monoclonal antibodies. We didn't have uh, antiviral agents. We didn't have vaccines. All we had was barrier protection. I mean, you know, masks, social distance, isolate, quarantine, test, test, test. That's it. Knowing that everybody who you ran into in the street who was, was had no symptoms could still be carrying the virus and shedding the virus. I mean, that's all we had. So we're coming off that mindset, you know, of this just, just uh, isolate, isolate, you know, quarantine, quarantine. Um, now you you have you fast forward, you know, two and a half years. You have you have monoclonals, you have antivirals, you have vaccines that are incredibly effective, and you probably have ninety to ninety five percent population immunity from vaccination or natural infection. We are in a much much better spot than we were. So how do we move from that 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 sort of fear-based action back in 2000 to where we are now, knowing that you still have to protect the vulnerable because every year three and a half to four million children are born who are gonna be completely susceptible. I think that those people who are immune compromised and there's at least nine million who are never gonna make a good immune response to this vaccine. And then the sort of the, the older elderly, say, now that I'm over 65, I have trouble saying the word elderly, but you know, those <laughs> older elderly, you know, you need to protect them because this virus is gonna be with us for, decades in all probability. And so we need to figure out how to do that. 
Yeah. And I think, so one of the things I'm a prevention first guy, I spend a lot of time trying to teach my patients how to keep their immune system as solvent as possible to be ready to challenge uh, itself with whatever pathogen tends to show up because this may not be the last pandemic and, and who knows what the next time it'll come. So what do we do to be ready for this? And to your point, age, we can't really change, but there are things that come with age that we could get after. And I thought during this entire two and a half years, I've been writing newsletter after newsletter every week on this topic, citing the data and publications. And there was only one article that I could find on this. I'm going to read it quickly. It was by Helena Evich in Politico. And she wrote, in Washington, there has been no such wake-up call about the link between diet-related diseases and this pandemic. There is no national strategy. There is no systems-wide approach. Even as researchers increasingly recognize that obesity is a disease that is driven not by a lack of willpower, but a modern society and food system that's almost perfectly designed to encourage the overeating of empty calories along with more stress, less sleep, less daily exercise, setting millions on a path to poor health, outcomes that is extremely difficult to break from. She wrote on, Glickman noted that the country's leading voices on coronavirus, including Anthony Fauci, don't focus on underlying conditions and what could have been done for them in the long term. Instead, they focus solely on vaccines, which has been proven to be safe and effective. And she goes on and on and on. But my point to there. I, like you, am 100% in belief that the vaccines was probably the best thing we did to prevent death. But why was there and why is there still some lack of discussion around what are the antecedent risk factors for these comorbid diseases that are age-related only because you've done this bad behavior lifestyle-wise for long enough to then make your system inflamed so badly? I know, you know, when you look at Yonkers' work with uh, Alessio Fasano, you know, that dysbiosis, gut dysfunction is is turning out to be a piece of this as well. So what do you, what is the reasoning behind that? I know, you know, your focus is mostly the vaccinology side, but is there anything you've heard, the tea leaves when you're in these whispering groups where everyone's discussing the major reasons why we're going to do what we're doing? I think it's um, the social construct is that it's hard to say that. I think it's hard to say um, if you look at who it is, it's really getting hospitalized say, of, of the people who are, are less than 50 um, and don't have evident, other evident comorbidities. And by that, I mean chronic lung or chronic heart disease. It's obesity. I right. mean, I would say if, when we see children come into our hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who are severely ill with this virus, they're invariably obese. And, and But it's hard to say that. It's, it's, I don't know, because maybe it's considered to be um, just politically incorrect to, 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 I guess, call out a group or, or, or point to the finger at a group by using that word. And, and nobody says it. You're absolutely right. And so um, do, do, could we have an impact on this by trying to have, you know, better, healthier eating habits um, so that you, you weren't sort of driven to this sort of, you know, diet that, that invariably is going to cause you to be overweight and therefore make a less effective response against this virus. Yes, it's always true. I think that yeah. you can make the same case for monkey virus. I mean, monkeypox virus. I think, you know, the, 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 it's, the, what, how are you going to have the big, biggest impact is target behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and clearly the behavior there again, and monkeypox tends to be something nobody wants to touch with a 10 foot pole because of the AIDS epidemic and how that played out. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. That we're... And I, I tell you, and I, I sort of get it at some level. I mean, I was a first, uh, I was a infectious disease fellow. Uh, my first year of fellowship was in 1980. So I, I and, and we're, and, and it, you know, what, what was that? I mean, that was a disease of men who had sex with men, especially um, 
uh, men who had sex with many partners. That's also true now with monkeypox. This accounts for probably 95% of what we're seeing. But the minute you say something like that, you say that, you know, it's, it's here's how we can change behavior. It is always interpreted as an attack on that lifestyle. Right. And, and it's not. It, it's really not. It's just saying it, it's not an attack on lifestyle. Just be careful. I mean, you know, so so consider, you know, the, the people with whom you're having sex. I mean, consider how you can best protect yourself because this is a virus that can kill you. But I remember in the early 80s where this played out, I remember this, how awful this was, that the um, there was such fear of that virus. And, and this 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 group, I mean, gay men really got targeted so, so much. It was so bad that I remember when, for example, children would get HIV because they passed through a birth canal that was contaminated with the virus or adolescents would get HIV because they were getting it, who had had, um, uh, say, uh, hemophilia, who were then getting frequent blood transfusions, which might have been contaminated with HIV. It was Ryan White's story. Um, they were always called innocent victims. Well, everybody is an innocent victim. Nobody deserves to die from an infectious disease, no matter right. what your lifestyle choices are. And that was the subtle way in which I think that that group had a reasonable complaint that they were being targeted and treated unfairly. So it's it's just a very delicate issue, but it, it doesn't get handled because we're, it's so much easier to talk about vaccines or talk about antiviral agents than to talk about uh, changing behavior. Yeah, and unfortunately, to that point, though, again, that's just one one virus in this case, and the behavior change that would come along with obesity would prevent infectious issues on on multiple levels. So I think that's a conversation that we we as a society start start we just start to have to have this go on, and it's a mess that we don't. So I want to talk about a little bit other stuff. So when we looked at you know, hospitalization, right? So initially we're tracking cases and it was very clear early on that cases were not the really the real reason we should be tracking to see your point, the vaccine was preventing death and, and, and morbidity. So we started tracking hospitalizations, but then it was really tricky on, okay, was the hospitalization due to COVID or was the hospitalization something else? And oh, by the way, the patient had COVID as well. Should we not be tracking something else like hypoxia plus ICU admission or something a little bit more targeted to say, yeah, you have COVID, Oh, by the way, you're also sick with what looks like COVID. Yes. Uh, and then there was a study done, I think it was out of California, where they tried to separate that out. Are you being admitted with COVID or for COVID? And, and when they just did the simple thing, which you just suggested, which is, who was requiring oxygen, you found that the incidence of hospitalization dropped by about 65%. It's not fair. I mean, when you look at this sort of the worldometer, which I do pretty much every morning, and you look at hospitalizations and deaths, is it for with COVID or for COVID? Because that 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 matters. I, I mean, how we, we handle this moving forward matters. I mean, we're in what we call a pandemic. Uh, pa the, the definition of a pandemic, at least one definition of a pandemic, is that it changes the way you live, work, or play. And so therefore we define what what is a pandemic. We, the, the, the citizens of this country, define what is a pandemic. And I think many people in this country have said it's not a pandemic anymore. I mean, they're willing to to live with at some level the amount of hospitalization and death that's being caused by this virus and they so they don't change their behavior i mean if you i right now i'm sitting in avalon new jersey if you go to the grocery store here you would not know there was a pandemic because no one wears a mask no one social distances it's a we're back to where we were and you could make the analogy actually say two years before there was a um uh before this sars-cov-2 virus came into the u.s there were 800,000 hospital admissions for influenza and, and about 60,000 deaths. We don't we didn't change our behavior for that. We could. I mean, we could because look what happened. I mean, in 2020, when we decided to 
masks, social distance, um, closed schools, closed businesses, restrict travel. We eliminated influenza and respiratory disease, and virus and paraflu. I mean, we saw none of those viruses. So, so obviously that's a ridiculous price to pay to eliminate those viruses, but you can dramatically decrease that even with just simple, more, more simple ways. I mean, there are some countries, for example, that do mask in the winter. Yeah. And, and the animals loved it because they went back into the city centers and they started getting back to the way life was. I, I always thought about the pandemic was an unregulated experiment that we could never do again. That showed that when humans die out, the world's fine. The, the species will go take everything back over. We're, we're probably more like a virus than any other species on Earth. I, you know, when I think about destruction of, of our green spaces, whatever. But that being said, I, you know, I, I, I agree with you entirely. So let's switch to kids whole full stock. You know, you're a pediatrician with fellowship training. I'm a pediatrician and we're looking at kids now. So all of a sudden, you know, again, there's a lot of problems going on in the world of vaccinology. Now polio's making a comeback. I think again, my my biggest sadness around what happened around the, the the vaccine story with COVID was that it made a lot more people vaccine hesitant in general for vaccines that we have been 100% behind. People have been doing it. And all of a sudden, I'm having more and more patients say, I won't vaccinate anymore. I'm not doing this. I'm afraid. So we're in a bit of a struggle. So talk about what kids need the vaccine let's talk into myocarditis because there's a lot of that with the teenage age group let's let's lay the land for people to get the story of what vaccine and the mrna and then novavax as well the, the protein side of it what's the story with vaccination so people can get a clear cut paul offit version of what's the deal well, so um, there are never risk-free choices. There are just choices to take different risks. I think as a parent, your job is to take, always take the lesser risk. Um, know that the vaccine is highly effective at preventing serious illness. I, the, the current vaccines are not as effective at preventing mild illness, but that's okay. Uh, I mean, the goal again is keep your child out of the hospital. And I guess we all have our biases. I work at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. It's hard to watch children come into our hospital who are who could be vaccinated or unvaccinated. And then they're struggling for, for breath. And ultimately they're, you know, sometimes they're, they're sedated and they're brought up to the intensive care unit and they're, they're put on a ventilator and the parents are crying. Um, and, you know, it's because the child's not vaccinated, parents aren't vaccinated, siblings aren't vaccinated. I mean, this is preventable. And, and it's, it's, it's so, so therefore, um, a choice not to get a vaccine is not a risk-free choice. It's a choice to take that risk. So you could argue, well, yeah, but wait a second. Isn't it true that this vaccine can cause myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle? Yes, it's, it's rare, but it's real. So, for example, when we, the, you know, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee first reviewed those data for the, um, you know, for the 16 to 17-year-old with myocarditis, um, it, it's, it's roughly, so it's generally males, it's generally after the second dose, it's generally within a week of the second dose. And uh, the good news is it's transient, short-lived, self-resolving, but not always. I mean, you can still see some evidence in, in children, say, six months later, a year later. You don't want to have myocarditis, even if it's mild and self-resolving, because there's always a spectrum of illness. And so as we move to younger children, that was the fear, because here was a, here was a phenomenon that was really a phenomenon of the 16-year-old to 29-year-old. It really wasn't a phenomenon as much of the older person. It was something about that younger person, especially younger male, that was at risk for this. So you worried when you went down to like the 12 to 15-year-old, it would be even a greater risk, but it was a lesser risk. And same with the 5 to 11-year-old, even a lesser risk. And and same thing for the less than 5-year-old. The thing that people need to know is, is SARS-CoV-2 virus also causes myocarditis. I mean, there was a study done in... Um, Ohio State University it was published in JAMA Cardiology, and what they did was they looked at these 
healthy athletes, 18 to 22 year olds who had COVID and all of them who had COVID got a cardiac MRI, a heart MRI to answer the question, did they have any evidence of myocarditis, symptomatic or asymptomatic? And what they found was that, that one in 45, meaning 2.5% of those who had COVID had abnormal cardiac MRIs. One in 45, that's a whole lot more common than the one in 20,000 you saw in the 16 to 17 year old. So there are never risk-free choices. And I, I just think people don't understand. I would argue the greatest risk of getting vaccines statistically is driving to the office to get them. <laughs> there's there's so much truth to that. I think Peter Tia had a podcast where he was looking at risks of, of different things. And one of the greatest risks for all cause mortality under the age of 20 was driving in a car in any way, shape or form. And then all the other stuff was a little bit less than that. So yeah, yeah, to that point. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about what other people have heard and are a little bit afraid of in this age group. And this is this multi-inflammatory syndrome C or or MISC. I know your group up there in in CHOP, um, your, the immunology department, others have been doing a fair amount of work with this. What is MISC for so the parents understand it, and why is it four weeks later than the actual infection? Right, so this multi-system uh, inflammatory disease of children is something I had never seen before or conceived of before. The, the stories are fairly typical. Usually it's a five to 13 year old child, average age around nine years of age, who has a trivial infection, um, asymptomatic infection, mild infection, which is picked up often because they were exposed to a friend or family member, and then they're fine. And then a month later, they come back with high fever, um, often ab abnormal chest x-rays, pneumonia, and evidence of heart disease, and evidence of kidney disease, and evidence of liver disease. I mean, and, and, and they're no longer shedding virus. They're, they're, they're not only antigen negative, um, you know, so they're not uh, um, shedding, likely shedding infectious virus, but they're PCR negative, meaning they're, they're done. And PCR tends to last, you know, for several months sometimes, whereas your antigen testing becomes negative. They're done with the virus. They have rid themselves of this virus near as you can tell. Nonetheless, they're having this, this essentially, I think what I think is in part, an immune response against their own blood vessels. I mean, there's some sort of, anti-endothelial cell immune response for whatever mechanism that is. And I know people at Children's are looking at this. And so therefore, uh, because all organs have a blood supply, all organs are at risk and it can be severe. I mean, as of, uh, I think the end of June, there were about a little less than 9,000 cases of reported MISC in the United States. There were 70, 70 deaths from MISC. So it, it's, it's, um, it's un it's unique to this virus. I mean, we see a lot of respiratory viruses in our in our hospital. I don't know of a virus that does this, and and it's a clue at some level, I think, to long COVID as well. But it's uh, it's frightening. Yeah, and and the the Yonkers Fasano work has that been repeated and shown that the spike protein is replicating inside the gut, and maybe that's leaking through the tight junctions, causing some of this, or is that still in conjecture? I, I would say that's still conjecture. I mean, this this virus still to me like like flu or like paraflu, um, is, is really um, does not have viremia as part of its pathogenesis. So it's hard to understand. Um, so so when you what, what people do, and I think this can be misleading, is they look for evidence of, of genome. And, and that is not evidence of, of replicating virus at all. I mean, I, I, my real expertise is in rotavirus. I mean, that's where I spent 25 years of my life is working on rotavirus. Right. Uh, the system was fortunate enough to be part of a team that chopped that created the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech. Um, rotavirus, you will, if you're infected with rotavirus, you will shed infectious virus in your stool for about a week to 10 days, but you can be PCR positive for six months. Um, and that's the problem with PCR. I think it can really be misleading here.
Okay. So let's shift gears to the the booster story. So you wrote an excellent editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine, April 28th, I think of this year. And you sort of laid out the framework of, okay, this is the booster story, booster story. Now we're seeing, I'm, you know, I have a bunch of kids going back to college. Some colleges are asking for a third dose. Some colleges are not doing it anymore. Some are mandating it. Some are not. Let's talk about the booster story for the young people. Number one, just solidify that. I know you touched on it briefly, but I want to solidify this for the authors to hear. I mean, the the listeners to hear it, and then, and then let let's segue from there into you know what groups are the highest risk in kids. Yeah, so I would still argue, where's the evidence that a healthy young person who has received two doses as compared to three doses? Is at, at, is at greater risk of being severely ill. Where, where are those data? I mean, there are data once Omicron came in showing that you were better off getting a third dose as compared to two doses in terms of hospitalization, but who were those people? Those right. weren't healthy young people. So so I think it's unfair. I'm, I have a, a future son-in-law. Uh, he's going to be my son-in-law next year when, that, when my daughter marries him, you know, who, who uh, was on a college campus and um, he's getting his MBA and uh, he couldn't get back on campus until he got to third dose and you know i just it, it really upsets me uh, because first of all he's a young person young male who who if he gets a third dose does have some risk of myocarditis which is a risk that you're willing to take as long as the benefits are clear and the benefits aren't clear and if the benefits aren't clear then it's unfair to ask him to take that risk even if it's a rare risk it's still unfair to ask him to take that risk and i've i've said this to many people in in the world of vaccines who are well placed in this uh in this vaccine community saying show me the data that that third dose protects the healthy young person from from severe disease because i just don't see that Right. And especially since Omicron has evaded the ability for the vaccine to offer any major benefit in preventing transmission. I could say, okay, if you're saying we're going to give this to these young men to prevent transmission on campus for those that are at higher risk, okay, fine. But there's none of that. So at this point, to your point, this is it 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 lacks it lacks credibility, which then brings the whole struggle for me back to parents thinking there's an agenda up on high to vaccinate without logic. And then now we're seeing more and more people not vaccinating. So I think that your point is very well taken. And I appreciate, again, somebody who is so pro-vaccine to come out and state fact and reality in a world where there's too much of this polarized tribalism. We can't say X about Y. No, the truth really needs to be what you're saying. So again, I, I really appreciate that. So let's switch gears to the, what happens if you get multiple boosters and is there a possibility as we were talking about early of affinity maturation or, or antigen maturation that you can have this problem that you talk about with antibody imprinting and then future vaccines with new strains no longer have the ability to, to work what's the story there and 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 are we seeing it potentially playing out yeah, it was just a paper in Science Direct that that made that point. Actually, it showed evidence for what you know used to be called in the 1950s original antigenic sin, a, a term that was coined by Thomas Francis, who was a flu researcher at the University of Michigan, who who noted that 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 you could tell when people were born based on how they responded to uh, not just influenza infections but influenza vaccine because they are always responding as if they were responding to that first exposure so-called original antigenic sin. I can only imagine that Thomas Francis was Catholic, or he, <laughs> but 
um, and, and otherwise known as imprinting. That in other words, that you lock in to a certain response. Um, I guess one example, I'm not sure this is a perfect example, but if you, for example, um, when the H human papillomavirus vaccine first came onto the market, it was HPV4. It contained four serotypes, right? Um, 6, 11, 16, and 18. Um, and then it was replaced by um, a nine component vaccine. Well, if you, if you get the nine component vaccine two or three times based on your age, you make an excellent immune response to those nine serotypes. But if you've gotten the HPV vaccine four first, you actually respond much better with that HPV nine to those first four serotypes. You, you have a lesser response to, to those five additional serotypes. I'm not sure that's a perfect example of original antigenic sin, but it gives you a sense of what imprinting is. And that's imprinting. So what you worry is, is the sort of boy who cried wolf phenomenon. As we continue to boost with this ancestral strain, if there were a vaccine variant that came, sorry, virus variant that came around, that was truly resistant to protection against severe disease and you've locked in to this other response, um, then you've done harm. So when people say, you know, there's no downside to giving a booster dose, of course there's downsides. There's downsides to anything you do medically that has a positive effect can have a negative effect. It's always true. So be humble moving forward here and circumspect. Yeah, and I think, you know, to your point where, where we're talking about there for the listeners is that there are these plasma cells and B cells that are sitting in the memory world and they have the understanding that if they if the system sees a virus again, they are programmed to start to pump out antibodies to neutralize the the virus. And and in this situation, if for some reason a newer strain that's completely different comes on the comes on the system, that may not actually come to pass. And the old old antibodies will come out unable to neutralize and the virus will replicate ad nauseum and we'll be in trouble all over again. And so, yeah, so, you know, I, again, once again, I appreciate the, the candor regarding the possibility that there is a downside to doing this. So Paul, let's go to, you know, your, you know, have a, a family and do you have grandkids? Um, one's on the way. Fantastic. Congratulations. So if your grandchild was alive today, what is the prescription for parents right now moving forward in the endemic state of COVID with BA.5 and whatever comes our way? You know, and let's touch on vaccine, diet, masking, not masking, social distancing, anything you think has value in understanding this. And you and I'm perfectly comfortable with saying to this, you know, if your child has immune compromised state or X, maybe you should be more likely to mask up for, you know, however you want to play this. Well, I certainly think uh, that, that, um, that a child less than five years of age should get a vaccine. I do. I mean, it, it's, because the virus still circulates, because the virus still can cause disease. And, and I think the, the, at least the CDC reported that over the past two years, about a little over 400 children less than five years of age have died. About a third of them um, had high risk uh, medical conditions, but two thirds didn't. So assuming those data are correct, assuming that's why they died, um, you know, that's frightening. And I've certainly seen young children die in our hospital. So it's, it's not impossible that that could happen. The, the, the one that I saw, yeah, sorry. Let me hold you that for one second. I remember back when, you know, because influenza is one of the vaccines I highly recommend under the age of two years of age, because that was the only time I see kids in general die of influenza in our clinic. And that year where we didn't have enough vaccine, we were only able to give in general one dose, but that was enough to stop death. For those parents that are vaccine hesitant, do you think just one dose would be enough to potentially, and this may not be answered, but I totally respect if you say no answer to this. My hypothesis is that one dose would be enough to prevent death because there's some memory in the system already in place. You know, I, th I think that's 
likely, but again, not certain. So Moderna is a two-dose vaccine, Pfizer is a three-dose vaccine for the less than five-year-old. It may be over time that Moderna will become a three-dose vaccine as well. But um, so you can get quicker immunity with Moderna's right now than with Pfizer's for the less than five-year-old. Um, you know, it was hard to know when the, they did the studies, you know, at, at uh, for one versus two doses. Uh, so there was a three to four week interval, which was not a big interval that enabled you to really answer that question because there were not a lot of cases in there, but there was certainly some evidence that one dose was at some level protective. So, but two doses was clearly, was likely to be better. And I know there's a lot of data that came out that the timing interval should be spaced out. Is the reason we're not spacing that out to the degree we think we should 12, eight, eight, you know, 16 weeks because of the effort it would take to restudy everything? Yeah, I think you're right. I think you, I mean, if you look in, in UK where they've done studies looking at say three to four weeks versus time zero and then 12 weeks because there was a shortage of vaccines at one point, there was better, you were better off spacing it. And this, this always, this always was the issue. Back in December of 2020, when we were considering this, the vaccines for Pfizer Moderna's vaccine, I remember talking to people like Tony Fauci and, and Stanley Plotkin, who was my boss and, you know, the inventor of the rubella vaccine, the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine. I mean, he said to me, and so did Dr. Fauci that, that in the end, this is going to be a three-dose vaccine because you need four to six months between doses to get the kind of frequencies of memory B and T cells that will enable you to have long-lived protection. And at least up to, to one year after um, after these vaccines were introduced, that wasn't evident. And now then Omicron came in and sort of confused things a little bit. But I'm still not clear that that's true for the, for, for the mRNA vaccines because you had no experience with the mRNA vaccines. I think it certainly was true for the inactivated vaccines like hepatitis A, the polio vaccine, or the purified protein vaccines like hep A or hep B. But it was it's not clear to me that's true for for this vaccine. I mean, I think um, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Plotkin are, are virtually always right. So I'm sure that they're going to be shown to be right in the long term, but still waiting to see clear evidence for that. And Novavax coming online for the younger kids, if it's if it seems to be, you know, would 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 that be an option for folks? Because I know they haven't studied that in the young, young group yet. I think that they've submitted for, I think Novavax may have submitted for a younger age group, meaning less than 18 outside of this country, but they they, they haven't submitted for it in this country. I know they're studying it. Um, we'll see. I, I, um, I think for some people, they'll, they'll argue, well, you know, this is not a genetic vaccine. This is a tried and true technology. It's a purified protein vaccine, which we've been using for 30 years in this country, that kind of vaccine. So let's wait for Novavax. I think Novavax's greatest value is going to be as a booster vaccine, which they're now... I think they've now generated data for and are going to be submitting for an EUA for for that as a booster dose. So I'll be curious to see whether the sort of heterologous booster, meaning, you know, give mRNA vaccine, follow it up with a purified protein vaccine is better than giving another dose of an mRNA vaccine. Yeah, great. Any other thoughts on the mask, not mask? Uh, obviously, diet is big for me. Sleep, maintain your immune function as best you can. Other thoughts for parents on this topic? Now, I think I think um, that it's going to be hard to to get to keep up with the masking and social distancing. I just think it's it's impractical. And yeah, yeah the CDC recently definitely loosened their uh, recommendations. And I know that uh, David Rubin, who's head of the policy lab at CHOP, has now sort of moved away from that also. So I, th I think we're sort of following basically the lead of the public that has already made that decision. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, the public for sure. <laughs> Depending on you know some states more than others, but the public has definitely decided that they're they're pretty much they're pretty much done with this reality as well. Any other thoughts? I know um, we didn't touch on long COVID, and we're probably not going to go that route. But um, vaccine has shown in one study I know Kuoti et al. showed that fifty percent reduction in long COVID or PACS post vaccine. Um, anything there that's changed? 
you know, it would it would make sense that the greater the burden of illness, the more likely you are to develop long COVID. And there certainly are a couple of studies showing that vaccines, while not eliminating your chance of long COVID, do lessen. I do think we need to better define long COVID. I mean, right now it's a little bit all over the place. You know, some people say four weeks, some people say eight weeks, some people say 12 weeks. Different countries have different definitions. You have instances of long COVID that vary from 5% to 50%. So I think, you know, we that shows you that you need to have a better definition, but we'll get that. But there's one thing you said earlier, I just wanted to come back to for a minute. I, I think that the um, that what worries me the most in all this in terms of pushback against vaccines is that the, the anti-vaccine movement has managed to align themselves with the right. That's new. That wasn't true before. I mean, it used to be that there was not a politics of the anti-vaccine movement. On the left, if you will, it was more sort of all things natural. I don't want to put anything in my body that's unnatural. These manufacturing uh, residuals or additives or adjuvants, et cetera, preservatives. I don't want that in my body. Um, and on the right, it was government off my back. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to raise my children. But they have have aligned themselves with the right. And, and what worries me in this is this pushback. I think you would have a hard time mandating a COVID vaccine for school entry. I do. And I think because you feel like you'd be leaning into a left hook at this point. And I feel like that's going to spill over to other vaccines. You're already starting to hear even U.S. senators talk about how, you know, vaccines don't need to be mandated. Let parents make their own choice. You, you see that at, at many levels in terms of, you know, let parents make decisions about what books are taught. Let parents make decisions about whether their children should get vaccinated uh, to go to school. And and if this spills over into other vaccines, it's going to be tragic. Yeah, and the problem for that is um, you're a little older than I am, and my partner, Dr. Koontz, is 84. He lived the pre-measles vaccine era. He lived the pre. The only vaccine I truly live pre where I saw the outcome of disease change post-vaccine was Prevnar. When pneumococcus came on the scene, I was blown away at the efficacy and how many kids I didn't see dying. And I think the, to your point, the sad part will be if we ever get to a point where we're below herd immunity for a lot of these bugs, we're going to see some people dying. And that's going to, unfortunately, this is where the pendulum swings backwards. That'll scare enough people probably to come in too. The one of the things I notice more than anything is when people come from other countries to here. They want every vaccine known to man because they've seen the outcomes of people dropping dead left and right um, in their home countries where vaccination is a difficult sell or even just difficult to get. So, yeah, I really worry about this when I am 100 percent pro vaccine and all of these things. So a couple last things. Mucosal vaccine. Is there any thought that that may be something in the pipeline to hit the virus where it does its first work at attaching to the to the uh, ACE2 receptors? Right. So, so the thinking there is if you immunize by a mucosal route, say an intranasal route, that you will get um, an increase in, in antibodies at the mucosal surface, typically secretory immunoglobulin A, but more importantly, that in, say, nasal-associated lymphoid tissue, so-called NALT, that you'll have memory cells so that when you're then exposed, that those memory cells will become activated and differentiate and make antibodies that will then presumably lessen your chance of shedding and therefore sort of helping us better get on top of this pandemic. I, I guess I'm not as optimistic just because it's it's, an, it's a short incubation period and it still takes time for activation of, and differentiation of those memory cells. And so I don't think you're ever going to get to that point where you can significantly decrease transmission. I don't, this is, unless you, the only way to do that is lengthen the incubation period. And that's why you can eliminate diseases like measles, which has you know, a longer incubation period or smallpox, you know, 
um, rubella, which we eliminated from this country by 2005, because those have those are long incubation period diseases. So there's plenty of time for activation and differentiation of memory cells to even prevent mild illness. That's not going to be true here. And so, uh, as you notice, I mean, the flu mist, you know, the intranasal flu vaccine was not exactly a uh, game changer. No, and I appreciate that commentary as well, because that was one thing we did think was going to be pretty impressive, and then it didn't turn out to be what it is. So I think the take-home points here are very well taken, uh, Paul. I appreciate all of your efforts and work at the national level, at the local level in the Philadelphia area, and all the wisdom you share. I appreciate it, and um, I hope that people listen and that uh, the the news to use is here. And for me, I am going to keep plugging the the mantra that, let's take care of our immune systems first so that God forbid something changes in the future while we're waiting for a potential, another vaccine to come, our death rate lowers because we don't have all these antecedent upstream flame inflammation system problems of these comorbid diseases. So any last thoughts? Um, only in, in the pediatric world, uh, realize that there are no risk-free choices and the choice not to get a vaccine is a choice to take a risk. Um, it's a small risk, but it's an unnecessary risk. And if you if you ever sort of pay attention to these parent activist groups, which I get involved in, groups like Families Fighting Flu, Meningitis Angels, National Meningitis Association, those are all parents whose children have suffered or died from vaccine-preventable disease, and they, they all tell the same story. I can't believe this happened to me until it happens to them. So, so vaccines are the safer choice. I would agree, and I appreciate your time, Paul, and uh, thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, so let's deconstruct this uh, lengthy conversation with Dr. Paul Offit and and come to some conclusions, right? So I think, as I stated earlier in the intro, he is a very critical thinker, skeptical, logical, methodical, and comes to some very good, strong conclusions about what is the current state of disease, what is the current state of vaccinations, the boosters, and all of the other very apropos discussion points right now in society for the coming months to years for pediatric, the pediatric age group, as well as other age groups. You know, we, we touched on some very difficult and touchy topics, right? So you look at things like the lack of coverage of risk factors upstream for dying of a disease like SARS-2 COVID-19. And the inability for the media and or the medical community to touch on the comorbid diseases of obesity or people who suffer with weight gain excesses, the disease of diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, and, and these other problems of potential lifestyle-induced chronically over time, inflammation-based immune system dysregulating issues, right? These are not, as Dr. Offit states clearly, these are not laying blame at the feet of people. These are awareness points. These are discussions of what do people need to know? You know, as we talked about with monkeypox, this is not about saying to somebody who is a man deciding to have sex with men that this is a blame on you. No, not at all. This is information point for somebody who is at risk based on their way of living. This is never a judgment on somebody's way of living. And frankly, I think that is one of the keys to be taken away from this discussion. 
I, I think about this when I talk to folks in my office who have different skin colors, right? So if I am going to be afraid to discuss the skin color of somebody as it relates to vitamin D, I am not doing anyone a service or a favor. I am in effect actually going against my Hippocratic oath of doing no harm because to not discuss it is to do harm. Do not to discuss the fact that the food that somebody's eating is driving them towards an immune dysregulated state that could put them at risk of dying. That is doing harm. And so I think these are keys moving forward in the discussion point in this podcast, every other way that we get information out. Now let's flip over into some of the discussions specific to the podcast. Dr. Offit was talking about this original antigenic sin and an article in Science Immunology by Menno van Zelm, spelled V-A-N-Z-E-L-M, we look at the analysis of memory B-cell responses to spike antigen after Omicron BA.1 breakthrough infections were noted to provide clues on whether antigenic sin, you know, is, is truly at play. And, and they write in this article, theoretically, a variant-specific vaccine has the capacity to generate more optimal immune memory to both conserved and new epitopes. And epitopes, again, are the protein fragments that, uh, you know, are on the uh, virus that, that are shifted, that are changed. And, and our antibody response to them is necessary to recognize these, these pathogens. However, if this vaccine is provided as a booster on top of previous Wuhan vaccinations, the original ancestral strain, the new specificities would need to be derived from naive B cells. These mean B cells that have not been programmed before, which would compete with the existing B memory against conserved epitopes. By nature, memory B cells have a preactivated phenotype allowing them to respond more rapidly and outcompete naive B cells, thereby restricting the response to the conserved epitope. This phenomenon of original antigenic sin was originally posed by Thomas Francis on observations from influenza vaccines, as Dr. Offit discussed, and subsequently described for influenza vaccines, where it is dubbed negative antigen interaction. The data from Kaku et al. provide the first indication that original antigenic sin occurs after Omicron infection in that they did not find unique Omicron-specific antibodies. If this were the same for vaccination with an Omicron variant vaccine, it would mean that this will boost a restricted number of memory B cells. Thus, it would restrict the number of unique specificities even more than boosting with a Wuhan ancestral vaccine. Potentially, this restriction would limit the capacity to respond to new variants rather than extend it, which would have been the goal. Clearly, more data will be needed, especially longer after infection or vaccination at these times, and these time points would better reveal new specificities derived from the delayed kinetics of the naive B-cell response. They state, in conclusion, the data from Quant et al. and Kaku et al. provide a first glimpse into the memory B cells after vaccine boosters and the capacity to respond to Omicron infection. The upside is that this provides us the critical information into the immunological basis of vaccine efficacy against current variants of concern, while also illustrating that the capacity to respond to variants is based on antibody affinity as well as diversity. So, in effect, what we're learning here, as, as Dr. Offit so eloquently stated, is that there is a possibility that these boosters will have an actual net negative effect on our ability to respond to 
variants of concern like B8.5 and others down the road. So this is not a discussion point on risk or no risk only. It is actually a thoughtful process on who should get a booster to prevent death and morbidity because then it's risk acceptable just in case we get original antigenic sin to come into play. But for the rest of us who are healthy, no major risk factors, have seen and survived the virus, and in my case had two doses of the original ancestral vaccine, what is my true risk factor and why do I need to take another booster? Frankly, I don't think I do. And this is just for me, I'm not speaking for anybody, only speaking for myself. But I tend to agree with Dr. Offit based on all the data that is out there, it is clear to me that it makes more sense for me to tackle natural infection as needed for the next decades of life. But I'm going to focus most of my efforts primarily on taking care of myself so my immune system is fully functional and ready to tackle initially by my innate immune system and secondarily by my adaptive immune system and memory B cells and T cells to wipe the sucker out so I don't suffer. That's my take home. Dr. Offit made a very good case with all his scientific understanding that that's a really good reason to maybe not do what they're doing and why he gave a dissenting opinion to the FDA. I found that very compelling. I also want to come back to his focus on the fact that we cannot prevent this virus from spreading like we have been able to do with other previous viral illnesses like polio or measles. Thus, the shift in focus is... The vaccination is there to prevent hospitalization and death overall. That should be the main focus. Somehow, as he stated, we lost our way. The original mRNA vaccines ended up completing the task of preventing death to greater than 95% protection against severe disease, which, as we stated, was astounding. You know, for me, that was remarkable, right? So somewhere along the way, we need to get back on track with our policy decisions and making about around stating the discussion points around boosters and vaccination in general are around preventing death and hospitalization, especially with an immunivating strain like Omicron. We need the CDC and other organizations to be looking even more closely at the data to find out which groups are most at risk, right? So the, the significantly aged population with comorbidities of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, coronary vascular disease, high blood pressure, renal disease, and other things where somebody, you know, can be pushed over the edge into a unhealthy ability to respond to vaccine state, whether it's flu or in this case, Omicron or some other disease. These are the groups that we need to target very clearly for potentially repeated boosters. If that's the, the route towards a potential survival Situation. So the risk definitely outweighs the potential for original antigenic sin problems or side effects from a vaccine. Dr. Offit point, you know, he pointed out that the goal of a booster is to promote affinity maturation, the mechanism by which repeated exposure to the antigen from the virus drives our adaptive immunity via the growth of memory B and T cells to higher levels of responsiveness, which means faster and more extensive, to specific regions of the protein structure, amino acid structure of the virus. 
which eventually yield which essentially yields more efficient protection for us against SARS-2 COVID-19. Based on, you know, what the evidence shows, there doesn't appear to be a clinical difference between having one or two boosters for the age groups in question. So he rightly concludes in my mind that, you know, we've established quite good T and B cell responsiveness against this pathogen as it is currently in its B8.5 state by having prior disease and or two doses of the vaccine and even those with a third dose, such that additional boosters don't seem to make any sense, especially with the possibility of messing with the, the theory of original antigenic sin. And we know clearly that antibody levels don't really matter because if we're measuring antibody levels as a sum total of what our risk is of developing disease, then you only have, you know, eight to 16 weeks of protection. But we know the antibodies are not the problem. They always wane. This is just a natural way of things. It's the T and the B cells that matter. So if we could measure them, we could actually know what people's ability to respond would be and know who probably should be giving boosters there as well. But with more than 95% of the country having had infection or and the vaccinations, then we know people have T and B cells in general, in most cases. So, you know, the focus for me, again, as a prevention first guy is let's focus primarily on keeping our immune solvency as best it can be. As we've talked about many times in this podcast, make sure you're getting adequate sleep. Make sure you're not exposing yourself to too many toxins. Make sure you're eating super healthy, especially with a, what I call whole foods, anti-inflammatory Mediterranean style diet, right? Make sure you're working on mind body, trying to avoid those things that stress you out so much that your cortisol and your uh, counter-regulatory hormones are all out of whack because you are stressed out, which does have downstream effects on inflammation through turning on an F-kappa B, but also through just dysregulating how our immune system works with chronic stress. We know these things to be true. And, and then finally, you know, what's the deal with masking? And I think, you know, as he stated clearly, and we saw this in our own clinic, the masking definitely prevented and the social distancing prevented us from seeing the flu, RSV, you know, even the common cold for over a year. We had almost no disease. It was insane, incredible. But as he stated clearly, the price is too high, right? To be socially distanced from others has huge downstream effects of stress, um, unhappiness of not being around your family, extended family, friends, you know, businesses can't handle us all being socially distanced. I know that recent article in um, Eat This, Not That, where the, the MIT specialist, you know, said, oh, we need to avoid big concerts. We need to avoid anywhere where somebody's singing or being loud and spreading potential COVID and, and we should avoid public transportation and we should avoid this, that, and the other thing. I mean, insanity. Who's going to live in a world now where we can't spend time around each other doing things like going to football games or soccer games? It makes no sense. The price is way too high considering the current structure of the virus and everyone's a priori immunity based on vaccination or in, infection. So for me, again, I, I think this, this conversation Really, Dr. Offit did an excellent job of laying out the truth as it appears based on the science, not sensationalism, not media, not fear, 
you know, um, of, of a world where we have to try and go for zero COVID. It's insane. Zero SARS-2, insane. Not going to happen. Mucosal infection that is so rapid with a couple days of, of shedding before you even know it. I mean, forget it. Never going to happen. So uh, the bottom line for me, take care of yourself. Take care of your kids you know, do right by yourself, love yourself enough to eat well, sleep well, really do all the stuff that keeps you in a position of being in the best possible shape. Don't shame yourself. Don't look in the mirror and say you're no good. Just look in the mirror and say, what can I do today that was better than yesterday? What one thing can I change today that was better than yesterday? And keep making those changes additively, 1% per day. So by 100 days, you've changed 100%, right? Towards your best self. And that of your kids. I think these are all the things that will give us an opportunity to have a beautiful life long-term. I want to add a few more caveats. You know, a couple studies now are showing that SARS-2 viral remnants are being found in the gut, right? And so is this actual DNA, RNA being found there, or is this actual sign of viral replication? That, as Dr. Offit says, is not understood well yet. But if we're finding viral remnants in the gut, what could that potentially mean? Is this a sign of persistence in human tissue that's causing the immune system to stay in a, uh, a state of vigilance? You know, if there's a persistent vigilance causing a exhausted immune system and other cell types to be, you know, put into a position of stress and, and problem. I, I think the work of, of Dr. San Milan's group, right? Where the article by DeBoer, D-E-B-O-E-R et al. 2022, where they looked at mitochondria, right? And his group noted that there's an urgent need to understand the pathogenesis of post-acute uh, SARS, you know, CoV-2 syndrome, which is long COVID and, and find effective treatments. They noted that the cardiopulmonary exercise test known as a CPET is commonly used to investigate unexplained exer exertional dyspnea or difficulty breathing. As such, it could provide insight into mechanisms of long COVID. The CPET data can be used to calculate rates of beta oxidation of fatty acids, otherwise known as FATOX, and also of lactate clearance providing insight into mitochondrial function. Fit individuals have better mitochondrial function, higher rate of fat oxidation during exercise than less fit individuals. Their results and their studies suggested that patients with long COVID had significant impair impairment in fat beta oxidation and increased blood lactate accumulation during exercise, regardless of previous comorbidities. And so what these authors are basically stating is that in principle, SARS-2 is infecting at least present chronically in our gut that we think and other cells leading to a shift in the function of the immune system locally and the mitochondrial energy centers to our cells, in this case, specifically the muscle cell. These cells unfortunately preferentially produce lactate through glycolysis instead of using fat as a major fuel source. This is like being in zone five of exercise for week on end, weeks on end. This is exhausting, right? So for me, over time with the research, we're learning that the mitochondria is becoming the center of many mitochondria are becoming the center of many diseases and disease states as they provide the energy of locomotion, thought, digestion, and so much more. So if anything's messing with the mitochondrial function, whether it's fat oxidation or the clearance of oxidation radicals or, or, or the such, this may be one of the precursors to understanding things of long, the nature of long COVID. But I think a lot of the folks upstream of this have dysfunctional metabolism to begin with based on 
uh, lifestyle choices that we've seen many times in these discussions, right? So, you know, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, you know, they're all associated with dysregulated immune activity and metabolism, which is driving, you know, the immune system to act abnormally, higher risk for autoimmunity, antigen presentation of self tissue, which isn't good. And finally, I want to touch on another study, and this was long COVID again, remains a discussion point on the choices we make upstream that are affecting us dysfunctionally, immunologically, and in the intestinal microbiome. In a study by LIU et al. in gut, you know, they looked at 76% of the patients at six months who had long COVID, with the most common symptoms being fatigue, poor memory, and hair loss. They noted that the gut microbiota composition of the intestines, specifically the large intestine that was associated with long COVID had an, a characterization of higher levels of ruminococcus, Bacteroides vulgatus, and lower levels of Facobacterium prosnitzi. Persistent respiratory symptoms were correlated with opportunistic gut pathogens, and neuropsychiatric symptoms of fever were correlated with nosocomial gut pathogens, including Clostridium actinomyces. The butyrate-producing bacteria, including Bifidobacter bacterium pseudocatalodinum and Facobacterium prosnitzi, showed the largest inverse correlations with long COVID at six months. We also know that low levels of F. prosnitzi are associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So we're starting to get a picture here again that those things that are driving a change in the gut microbiota to less F. prosnitzi and, and less uh Bifidobacter pseudocatalatum, and also, you know, in a lot of studies, we're seeing uh, acromancia being lower, that these are precursors to dysbiosis, which then are precursors to negative immunologic metabolic health outcomes. One of the ways to reverse this always is through higher fiber diets. Those are the keys to health. So again, if I'm going to drill all of this down at the end of the day, what we've learned from Dr. Offit and many of the other discussions in the newsletters and the data to date is that we have ways to mitigate risk. Those ways are through lifestyle decisions that help take care of our immune system solvency. For those that have never been vaccinated, to vaccinate if you've never had exposure to the virus to prevent yourself from a bad outcome. But if you've been vaccinated and or had a priori infection and survived it, then really at this point, your major goal is to take care of the self. If you are in one of the high risk groups, as stated by Dr. Offit, then you probably are one to be looking for repeated boosters over and over again. Absolutely. The rest of us, I think we need to follow the data where it leads. And, you know, this was an important topic. And I think Nobody better to discuss it than Dr. Offit, who is at the front lines of this and has been during the entire pandemic. And frankly, he's been in the front lines of discussing these topics through his entire career. So with that, I appreciate your time as always. I truly appreciate Dr. Offit and his candor and his effort and his research. And, you know, at the end of the day, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professionals not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.